Hello and welcome to season two of Leaked Lunch, the fly on the wall podcast that brings you to the dining table with me, Isabella Kaminska. In this edition, I sit down with former rates trader and LIBOR submitter, Tom Hayes, a man who never expected to become the central figure blamed for the global financial crisis of 2008. I'll be frank, this edition should have been out much earlier. It was recorded in January of this year, but we messed up the recording and it's taken a while to do the post-production work to make it a little easier on the ear for you. So heads up, it's not the best recording, but it's an important story, so do try and stick with us. For those who don't know, Tom was arrested and charged for manipulating LIBOR rates and conspiracy to defraud while working for UBS in Japan in 2012. The arrest came totally out of the blue for him and what was then his very young family. Unsure of legal protocol and fearing extradition to the US, Tom initially cooperated with the serious fraud office, but he soon realised that might have been a mistake. In the end, Tom was sentenced to 14 years in prison. He served five and a half years in total, in some cases at the UK's highest security facilities, among them Belmarsh. Much to Tom's relief, US authorities have now dropped all the charges against him, but Tom and the eight other traders who have already served time are still desperate to clear their names. You might think that's where the story ends. But in a surprising turn of events, new evidence has recently emerged that stands to turn the whole case on its head. Leaked files dropped to the BBC's Andy Verity now implicate far more senior individuals and indicate Tom and the other traders may have been badly scapegoated. At issue is a controversial retrospective application of the law, as well as public pressure to set a firm precedent no matter what. To learn more about the case, I took Tom, who it turns out is a fellow West Londoner, for a pub lunch by the river in Chiswick. He ran me through his career background and what it was like to find out he was being positioned to take the rap for much of the financial crisis. We also discussed his treatment by the media, what life was like in prison, and the role Christianity now plays in his life. The lunch, which took place at the City Barge in Chiswick, came to £58.16. I began by asking him what it was like to find out he was being blamed for so much of the global financial crisis. I think um, it was crazy because Barack Obama in sort of 08, 09 set up the Financial Crimes Task Force right. you know, and that obviously had a pretty specific remit which was to pursue bankers um, for their role in the financial crisis. The reality is, is I had nothing to do with the financial crisis. I worked in Japan for a Swiss bank dealing in Japanese interest rate derivatives, predominantly with Japanese clients predominantly with other banks. You know, I had no link to the retail world and one of the big uh, misconceptions about particularly my role was that Yen LIBOR in any way, shape or form was actually linked to retail products because it was a floating rate that well, actually didn't affect student loans, credit cards or mortgages. Most mortgages in Japan are fixed, um, very few are floating. If they are floating, they're fixed to Taiwan, which is a Tokyo Interbank offered rate. Um, but did you even consider yourself to be a banker, like in the traditional sense? Because I think that was one of the misnomers of the, of the crisis, is that traders who I wouldn't necessarily... And they are bankers, but they're not, they don't, they're not bankers in the kind of finance sense, conventional sense. Well, I mean, if you look at, you know, mortgage backed securities and like the derivatives that were traded against those securities, which were you know, underpinned by subprime, you know, they, you know, 
they, they were packaged up, securitized. You know, it's very different from sort of making markets, um, which is what we did, and then so. Um, and obviously then there were derivatives against those products which had that multiplier effect which made um, the whole prices so pernicious but you know you can't say that someone trading for exchange spot um, rates or someone trading like you know individual equities um, as a market maker I mean or even interest rate derivatives you know we we did not have any role in causing that blow up none um, but it didn't it mattered not it, it was irrelevant as far as as far as the powers that be were concerned um, it became a very sort of silent witch trial type event where politicians were eager to jump on board and just pursue anyone and everyone and, you know, I, I had I felt like I had really very I mean it's very rare you see criminal cases where politicians are in parliament saying that you what you did was akin to treason and you should be in prison. And people in the select committee are calling you a crook of the first order before they know anything about your case or you've even been charged. Yeah. I mean that's that's remarkable. I mean I don't I mean these days I can't remember the last time I had a febrile political atmosphere like that talking about conduct of people who are potentially going to be accused of quite serious misconduct and that 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 attitude being taken in an environment of frankly complete ignorance to the facts well I mean before before I I want to get your um, you know reflections on how it all went down and the, the mood at the time but before we get to that um, I just thought it'd be good to note to listeners that you are currently engaged in a, in a challenge to what you went like in, in terms of a legal challenge to, in terms of what you went through why don't you just quickly tell us where your position is right now well um, in the UK I mean I had a post-conviction appeal after my conviction and it was held within a matter of months from my conviction which is highly unusual um, part of the issue that the Court of Appeal at that stage had was the summing up that my trial judge had given and whether the subsequent political trials, the, the, the Crown Court judges were going to deviate from the way that the case in law was presented to the jury. So they had my criminal appeal very fast to basically rubber stamp what my trial judge had done and ensure that any future summing up was that, that was followed by future case if you followed in future cases because any crown court judge is not bound by the summing up of any other crown court judge but they are judge they are bound by rules um, court of appeal so I had that literally within months of being to go to prison which is really super fast it should never be that fast skip the first judge stage which is where they generally live where you have leave to go up to the court of appeal in the first instance um, and we lost um, and then um, we spent the following year pursuing um, an application or drafting an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, which is your last port of call where you've had an unsuccessful appeal in the United Kingdom. Um, that first application was filed in January 17 and we're now January 23, so six years ago. So they've been, as a continuous investigation with no final decision, I think mine is the longest they've ever done as a continuous investigation. And so what what's the next stage in that process? Well, the CCRC can't overturn my conviction. Um, all they can do is they have to weigh the grounds 
of, of my application and if they deem there's a reasonable possibility on the basis of those grounds then they can um, refer me back to the Court of Appeal that there's a reasonable possibility of my conviction might be overturned. And in that instance, then the Court of Appeal make the final decision as to whether or not to overturn my conviction. So what does that mean in practice? Because you've obviously already served five and a half years in prison. You were originally charged for 15. 14. 14, yeah. and then it went to 11, and you yeah. served five and a half. So if That's they overturn, what does that mean in practice? Do you get compensation of any sort what is i mean you get your name cleared well it, i mean it it will largely depend on what grounds we were to win on if that were the case um i mean obviously i can't get my time back i still have three and a half years more to serve on license i'm currently on license so i can't travel i can't go abroad um i you know i have to, i have to report to my probation officer i have to you know notify of changes in employment and so on and so forth so i'm not free by any stretch of the imagination so at the very least, it would mean my licence period finished. In terms of compensation, Chris Grayling, who was the Justice Secretary in the UK, changed the law in 2014 in relation to uh, wrongful conviction compensation. So it's now actually very hard to be compensated if you're wrongly convicted. Um, really? Yeah. So yeah. There's no, and what was it before? Did you get, was there some financial element to it? Well, before, if you were wrongly convicted, you would also automatically almost be um, compensated. And then Chris Grain changed the rules, so if there was a wrongful conviction, the onus then fell on the defendant um, to prove beyond reasonable doubt, which is a criminal standard, that they're innocent. So it's a bit like trying to prove a negative. So if you're unable to prove beyond reasonable doubt you're innocent, then you don't get any compensation. So it's, with the exception of cases that are very clear cut, like DNA, etc., etc., those cases are, um, you know, most people can't actually get any compensation for wrongful convictions in the UK anymore. Um, that decision, this challenge at the Supreme Court, um, was lost by um, a majority, and now they're at the stage. And now they're at the stage where they've taken that decision to the European Court of Human Rights. Should we get some food in the meantime? So, um, thank you. Could I get a, um, a Diet Coke? And do you want one course or two? Um, oh, oh, two's fine with me. Go, go for it. I, I would then get some... Because um, we're in the pub. Is, is that like a crack thing? Pop crunch? Similar, yeah. Okay, we'll have one of those. And then I will have the... Um, Slow cooked beef. Sure. Tom, what are you having? Um, I'll also have the beef, please. Yeah. And um, could I get uh, soup to start, please? Soup to start. Thank you. Do you have anything else to drink? Uh, I just get the same again. Please. Thank you. Lot, lot, Amsterdam Lager Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so who was saying about compensation so essentially they change the rules and now even if you are if, if you win a post-conviction sort of overturn of, yeah. of your um, of your case there's no compensation no financial compensation well i mean unless i can prove beyond reasonable doubt that i'm innocent um so basically that's next and near impossible in every single case um the exception would be is were I to win on the grounds that the case in law was erroneous and actually it wasn't a criminal offence, which is the way the guys in the States had their conviction overturned. Axiomatically, if I was not if I was not guilty of a criminal offence because the criminal offence didn't exist, yeah. then I've automatically proved your reason without innocence. 
So yes. in that case, I would be entitled to something. But I mean, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I, it's easy to think about finance and money and compensation. But it's I your mean, time. I lost my time, I know, I lost my marriage, I lost my relationship with my son, I lost, you know, my mental health, um, I lost, you know, a good 10 years plus of my life. Um, this is for me, you know, I, I want to be able to look people in the eye and say, though, actually, I never committed a criminal offence. Um, that would be the ideal scenario for me. And the second, just the secondary to that would be to say, well, they are still deemed a criminal offence in the UK, despite not being deemed a criminal offence everywhere else. But nonetheless, I've had the conviction overturned. So take us back to, like, say, 2007. Yeah. Um, you were in Tokyo at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you have any semblance, did you, have, did you feel there was a crisis coming? Did you have any, like, did anything seem outside of the norm, like, leading up into the crisis? Like, in terms of your market, in terms of what was going on? Yeah, it was interesting because August 07, um, there were a lot of big hedge funds who were all putting on large trades that the Bank of Japan was going to hike at the next interest rate meeting in August. Um, maybe they hadn't been told that you know, it was going to happen. And um, then about halfway through the month, we started to see, you know, some some visions, some, some ruptures in, 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 in markets. Um, and that was when the subprime started to sort of crack a bit. And I remember we had a group called Fixed Income about how UBS was going to have to, you know, settle right down the loss of, I don't know, $2 billion or something at the time, which, given their total loss at the time, was nothing, relatively. But at the time, it was a large amount. Um, and suddenly, you know, when things started to go wrong, you know, you had Northern Rock in the UK, which where we had people lined up outside a bank trying to get their cash out, and the BOJ actually didn't end up hiking, which is good for me because I was the other side of all the trades where they were gambling or not gambling or had placed their bets that um, they would hike. And what was your responsibility on the desk at that time? Market maker. I, mean, I just was there to make markets, provide liquidity. I mean, at the time, it was funny because I think I think on one of those days in August, it went mad. Like, six-month LIBOR jumped by six basis points, um, even though the bond market was really rallying heavily. So bond market rallying, interest rates going down in the bond market, but the cash market was severely stressed. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was like a big jump that day, I remember it. So how long had you been in that role? Well, six years, five years, something like that. So this was like, you knew your stuff at this point, like you, you've been operating. Well, I don't think you ever know your stuff as a trader. I mean, the moment yeah. you think you do, that's when you get kicked in the gut, you know. Um, like humility. How had you ended up in trading? How was, what was your pathway into trading? Um, well, after my first year at university, I went back home and I had a you know, I had an overdraft as most students do. And I worked 80 hours a week in um, in a in a pub wow. um, for two pounds seventy an hour, and uh, I got like two hundred pounds for working my eighty hour a week, uh, and I got to the end of the summer and I cleared my overdraft. But I I worked really hard, and I just thought I'd actually like to. I hard work in book, but I just would rather to get a better remunerated job. So. I had an internship with UBS um, the following summer, which paid a lot better. And then, uh, then I actually joined Greenwich NatWest, which became uh, RBS because RBS built NatWest. Ah, yes. Yes. So, 
and you and you enjoyed it so from the from your internship onwards you want you, you got a feel for working in the sector. I think you do enjoy it. It's a love hate thing trading. I, you mean like you can feel on top of the world and you can feel the lowest of the low. And you, you know I was trading back in the day when we didn't have all the sort of whole me too anti bullying thing going on and it was a tough environment on the desk. You know being yelled at, being told you shit and you don't know what you're doing. Um, you know, in a way that probably if that happened now, there would be reports to HR, this, that, and the other. But back then, you just had to wear it. Yeah. And you start off with no responsibility except getting everybody breakfasts and people's dry cleaning and stuff. I mean, it's an initiation period for a lot of well, young traders. Well, I think the thing is, is when you're trading on a desk, you're sort of in a silo. You're operating on your own. You know how well you do is is down to you, and how much time you want to give your trainee to teach them and help them is also down to you. But yeah. I mean, so. It has to be, you have to make yourself useful to that person in some way, shape, or form. Um, and in, in, in doing the small things like getting their breakfast, like getting their dry cleaning, like doing all Did of. You had to get people's dry cleaning. I had to, I remember one trader once said, I need to buy my dad a birthday present, go out and choose something for my dad. Wow. You know, just, that was a different just, era. Yeah, just gave me like two fifty pound notes and said, "Go and get my dad a birthday present." I was like, well, "I don't know your dad." And he, said, <laughs> he, said, he said, "I don't know my dad," and I said, "But he's your dad." And he said, "Well, we barely see each other." Anyway, so um, yeah, so it was back in those days where you, you had to sort of make yourself useful to get five minutes or ten minutes of their time right. to help you, because um, ultimately all you become is a threat to them. You know, you're all fighting for a seat, you're all fighting for the best seats that you can get. So, you know, um, it's it, it was different. I don't know what it's like now, but I can't imagine that my initiation, if you like, that whole process I went through as initiation, I cannot imagine that now. It, 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 I can't imagine that the same treatment is meted out to today's trainings. Maybe I'm wrong. But then I read recently that some Goldman's people had written a letter about how they were really upset that they were having to work really hard. <laughs> um, and that just, and I just shook my head because, you know, you want, you want, a, you want a starting salary of a hundred grand, and oh, yeah. then, then you don't want to put the hours in. I mean, like. You, you know, you, you make your bed and you lie in it. You go into that industry, you know what you're going to be in for. Well, it used to be similar in journalism. Like back in the day, you used to, um, you'd have to like be a runner or you'd have to get people coffees. And you know, when you were a trainee, you were the lowest of the low and, and you had all the shitty jobs. Um, but these days, I think that has, that mentality has changed. Like people come into the profession, they expect much higher sort of. Uh, level positions yeah. um, from the onset, and that's weird. So, when you, when did you get your first seat, like your first sort of proper PL? Uh, probably after. I mean, they send you on this training thing at the start, don't they? Where you're like, um, you know, you have to go in the classroom for six months, and then you know they rotate you. But I didn't. I wasn't rotating. The manager of my desk didn't see the value, and I, I agree with them. Um, and. Uh, Yes, yeah, so I think, it, I mean, and then you're on the desk for a while, and you're doing a lot of menial jobs, did a lot of P&L re reconciliation, you know, um, you know, check with the traders P&L every day, stuff like that. Um, and then probably about a year or something. And it's so funny, because when you start, you have to suddenly get used to risk. Yeah. And you have to suddenly get used to, like, losing money. Yeah. Like, and if you lose five or ten grand, you're like, oh, fuck, what's five or ten grand? Sorry, I No, it's okay, it's fine. Um, we, we, yeah. we, we, we go Joe Rogan on this. Okay, You fine. do whatever you want. Yeah, so I was like, fuck, I've lost ten grand. Now, like, later in my career, when my P&L suit was, like, in the millions per day, 
you know, like Tony Brand, I wouldn't think about it. But well, I would think about it. No, tell a lie, I would think about it. Um, but your attitude, your risk tolerance changes dramatically. And I, I mean, and, uh, and I, I misspoke there when I said I wouldn't think about it because I remember when my PL swings were of that magnitude, my trainee once turning around to me and saying, you know, it was only five grand. And I got really pissed off with him because I was like, it doesn't matter whether it's five grand or 500 pounds because next time that five grand would be 500 grand or could be five million. So you've got to care about every penny, like really care. And were you were you a successful trader? Like, Not always, no. I mean, I was at times really good and at times really bad. Um, but you have to, you know, I guess it's like how well you do over time. Um, and um, I, I don't think it started very well, and but I grew into it and I got better. And as my risk tolerance got better, um, then you know things were started going really well for me. And that's when Goldman's tried to hire me. Possibly the biggest mistake in my career not to join Goldman's. They offered to double my salary, well, not my salary, my, my bonus and my salary, because your salary is the smaller part of your remuneration. Um, now, not joining Goldman's was a big mistake because I don't think a lot of this stuff would have happened to me if I'd gone to Goldman's. Well, actually, this is a worthwhile question. What were the deals like then? Like, Because obviously these days, we've had all sorts of banker bonus uh, regulations, so salaries have been inflated in the banking sector as a result. Yeah. Back then, you know, what kind of salary would you have been at? And then About, what? not that much. I mean, it was like a couple of hundred thousand dollars um, as a salary. A couple um, hundred thousand? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that was like, you know, I think Goldman's were trying to hire me as a managing director, and it was more or less a couple hundred thousand. Right, and then... Maybe quarter of a mil. And then the deal would have been like a percentage of whatever you... No, very few people had percentages, actually. Uh -huh. I mean, Christian Bitter, one of the traders who I worked, who was working in interest rate markets, did have a percentage, but not many not many traders did have percentages. Um, so how did or it not work? Was it discretion? Well, I mean, that's the point. In theory, it should be a percentage, but you were always at the whim of the bank. And if the stars aligned and the bank did well, invested well, and you know everyone, you know, then you would get well paid. But I stayed. I mean, I, I give, the example I gave you when Goldman's tried to hire me, I, I stayed. They offered me a five million signing on bonus. I stayed for two and a half million at UBS, and I wound up getting paid two hundred and fifty thousand, despite the fact I had sort of written letters from them saying they were going to pay me two and a half million. So they reneged. This was even before like this was what. No, this was during the crisis. Oh, so Goldman's tried to hire me in 08. Oh, UBS then lost all their money in 08. So start of 09, I was meant to be paid this bonus. Suddenly I got 250 grand. Right. right. Um, which was like over four and a half million dollars less than I would have got if I'd gone to Goldman. So and had, had, they, had that happened before at the bank where they reneged on sort of bonuses to that degree? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, but I mean, at the time. Uh, at the time, I just felt really betrayed because I'd stayed for way less money anyway. I'd stayed for half the amount I was offered. Um, and this was before the whole LIBOR um, fiasco even oh, yeah, started yeah, yeah. to yeah. I mean, but, but it annoyed me because in my trial, there was this talk about avarice and greed and yeah. greedy bankers. And I was suddenly thinking, well, hang on a minute. You know, I turned down an increase in my remuneration of two and a half million. And actually, I mean, I remember my first year at UBS, I made them 50 million, and I realistically should have been paid five to 10% of that. Yeah. And I got like a $1 million bonus, um, which was, I thought, not great. But I mean, you play this game in banks where 
they try and figure out what's the minimum amount they can pay you to stop you walking out the door. Yeah. And I was not a political game player in terms of my remuneration. Um, I was happy at UBS. I'd been, I thought I'd lied to my managers. I thought I liked the bank. Um, and things were going well for me. And Goldman's, you know, I turned them down initially and then they came back with more money. And they think they must have thought I was some master negotiator. It wasn't that. It was just that I was actually quite pleased about where I was working. You have been um, brilliant. Thank, thank you. you very much. So, thank you very much. I've got some crack planes, which is probably, now I think about it, not an optimal dish for a podcast. But um, so that's really interesting. So, Goldman basically were around poaching people at that time. No, it was interesting because when I didn't go there, uh-huh. I said to the guy who was trying to hire me, Wade or son, um, you know, I can recommend a few other people for the role. <laughs> And he well, said to me, and he said to me, um, he said, we don't hire for roles, we hire people. Right. I mean, it was an interesting conversation for him because I was a bit, I felt under massive pressure going on such a big sign-on. And I said, you know, this is a massive sign-on. And, you know, I said, you know, what if I come and I can't make money or I lose money or whatever? And he said, he said, that's my trade. He said, as, as, as the manager of the desk, he said, you're my trade. He said, I don't, I don't need to trade through the market. I, I have to choose the people who are going to do that and think I'm making the right decision. Um, and I, but you know what? I sort of didn't have the confidence. My girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, was telling me that I should go to Goldman's and I was mad not to. Um, and you know, this was a great opportunity. But I just, yeah, I, I bottled it. It was a, it, ultimately, I didn't have the self-confidence at the time to go. And I should have. And it was stupid decision. It's funny how it's like one of those sliding doors moments where your life could have been completely different. Absolutely, it would have been. Goldman's work handled bank. They didn't contribute rival rates. Mm-hmm. You know, when if I walked out in sort of 08, you know, if and when rival investigations started much later, whether I would have fallen into those, particularly as some sort of person who could take the fall for a, for a bank, I don't know. So when did you first get an inkling that something was up? What was your? How did it transpire? So you were yeah. So you were working away. Prices had happened. Obviously things were bad at UBS. Well, I moved to City. Oh yeah. So you were. I mean, well, City came in for me the next year, and I didn't really want to talk to them at first Mm -hmm. because I didn't think they were serious, and you know. But they had they brought in a couple of ex Lehman guys, um, Andrew Morton, Chris Checkery. Mm-hmm. into rates and, um, so I went to meet them I just thought well I'll go and meet them um, this was when? this was, this was not 09 so this was the next year the year mm-hmm. after I'd been absolutely screwed on my bones mm-hmm. and um, I really liked Chris the guy who eventually hired me probably the brightest guy I've ever worked with I really really liked him I think he's in the crypto space now but, oh really? Um, okay. yeah I can't be sure because I'm, I'm not in communication with him. But uh, Chris and I um, got on well, and uh, so I said, "Well, look." At the time, I think I was. Um, at the time, I think I made. A, I think I was about 130, 140 million up that year in UBS at that time. So, you know. I didn't really see much point in leaving. 
um, in the hope that they wouldn't screw me or my bonus again. Um, so when they said, right, we'll give you a five million sign-on bonus, um, this time when my girlfriend said to me, you've got to go this time, you can't turn that down again mm. and run the risk of them screwing you over despite giving you a written guarantee. Um, the problem was the first written guarantee didn't have the legal safeguards, had all caveats like depending on the bank performance, blah, 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 blah. Um, but, so I went to City because um, like I said, I couldn't run the risk twice. Uh, and, um, so when did you move over? Um, December 2007. Okay. So no, sorry, December 2009, apologies. Mm -hmm. December 2009, and this was in Tokyo? That was in Tokyo too, yeah. And, um, um, so then, so everything was normal for how long? Um, I think it was around June. I got a call from Chris saying that some people were coming to talk to us about libels and lawyers from the States. But it's nothing to worry about. I shouldn't worry. And um, so I didn't think too much of it, really. Well, I mean, my, my ex-wife, who's then my girlfriend, and, and, and the city lawyer said, you need to get your own lawyer. And I was just like, no, Chris has told me I won't lose my job. The CEO, Brian McCaffin, he's told me not to worry about it. It's a fox ticking exercise. So I'm being told all these things by all these people. And um, I'm just sat there thinking, well, if my manager's saying that, and they know everything that I've done, right? They know everything that I've done. So, and I wasn't suspended. I mean, I'm in this investigation, I'm not suspended, which is anyone in the bank will tell you that's really, really... So you really, continued going to work? Yeah, I continued trading, making and losing money. Right. So, I, I mean, why wasn't I suspended? Well, it's a simple reason. Had I been suspended, I think the gravity of the situation would have hit me, I would have immediately lawyered up. My lawyers would have said, well, hang on a minute, you know everything that he's done. Because um, nothing was in secret. Mm. Um, and again, it's a, like you say, a sliding doors moment where, you know, had they suspended me, had I known, then particularly in Japan, we get the whole hierarchy. I mean, in Japan, if you can show that your managers knew or aware and told you and whatever, then you're completely absolved of any blame in Japan because that's the way the hierarchy operates. Okay, right. Yes, so for listeners who aren't familiar with the Japanese corporate sort of philosophy and um, practice, maybe give some insight into how it differs to, say, a UK system or a US system for a UK. Well, I mean, age is all important. I mean, it was one of the things I struggled with when I went over there, you know, rowing with salespeople who were more senior, who were older than me, and therefore, you know, in, in Japanese culture, more senior. Um, you know, that, that sort of deferential approach to like, you know, the managerial chain, you know, it's very, you know, it's not a lateral process, you know, you have this, this sort of, um, this, uh, this vertical managerial chain, and when you're in that situation, um, the junior person will not be blamed where something is, you know, exquisitely instructed to do something by a manager. So the, the chain of command is very clear, and yeah. there is an accountability that goes right to the top of the food chain. I mean, in so far, who knows, yeah. yeah. 
I mean, um, it would have been enough for me in that. I mean, I might have had a wrongful dismissal case actually. Um, it would have been enough for me to say, my managers know, and my managers were aware, and my managers were involved, and that would have been enough to exonerate me from Japanese culture. So, what happened next? Um, well. You're still trading away. Yeah, but so having all these interviews, and mainly I just remember being annoyed about being pulled off the desk during the working day. Mm. I actually wrote a letter saying, you know, you're disrupting my trading. Yeah. Can you please stop it. Uh, and um, so, carried on trading, carried on having these interviews with these, these guys from New York, from some insane, expensive law firm. But, like I said, I hadn't been suspended, so when one day I was pulled off the desk at 11am and told, I walked into a room of like the great and the good from like, you know, the senior managers of the city, including the, the CEO, Brian McCaffrey, who was not only aware of what I was doing, he was complicit in it. Um, and he turned around and told me I was losing my job. And I was. Just like that? Yeah, yeah, for, for libel stuff. And I couldn't believe it, I just looked at him and I said, I said, well, it's ironic you're firing given you're involved in this. I said, how much are you going to pay me? And they sent me out of the room for half an hour where they discussed what they were going to pay me to leave quietly. And came back and basically agreed to pay me three million for waive contractual clawback clauses they had for three million US. Mm -hmm. um, and they gave me a standard reference and I just thought, okay, I'm going to get another job. And I, people, when I told people initially that I'd been fired over libel, no one believed me. Oh, right. Every, I'd been having a tough year at City that year. I was down about 25 million because um, I'd had a, a, the Greek crisis in May 2010 that hit my PL quite badly. Mm -hmm. And everyone thought I'd lost my job because I'd lost money. Um, and uh, basically. Well, very, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised by that sort of speculation because trades, obviously, that's. That's the number what, one thing that you're going to suspect is yeah. behind a firing. But when I was said it's no, it's to do libel. No one believed me, and I said, look, there's loads, there's loads of lawyers involved. And it's to do with this libel thing. So immediately, I had other banks interested in hiring me. Barclays Capital, Deutsche, who tried to actually hijack my move to City, um, and Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, where I had new people who I traded with previously. And I went to America in January 2011. Went up a skyscraper there, had the contract ready to sign, go and work on the dollar desk there. Really? Yeah. And then they got a call from UBS telling them to, to not hire me because there was all this stuff going on. Which was interesting because it, it was UBS who called them, yeah. Um, because what happened after I got fired, um, UBS then decided to ask my previous manager to investigate me, which is sort of ironic given he was involved in everything as well. Um, and at UBS. At UBS, yeah. And then he got suspended, and then you know things snowballed, and UBS became an exceptional corporator. And rather than invite me back to the interview as part of this investigative process, which they did do for other employees, they basically set me up as the full guy. So, do you think the fact that you were not working at UBS anymore played a part in that? Massively, because I couldn't speak to what was being said about me. I wasn't invited back to speak to him. And the fact, it's, it suited UBS perfectly. I wasn't at the bank. Yeah, exactly. I'd worked for a Japanese subsidiary, not the main, um, not the main company. You know, they could 
put me up, negotiate who was going to be left alone, keep all the documents in Switzerland under the guise of bank, Swiss banking secrecy laws. Yeah. The Swiss courts ignored the mutual legal assistance requests from the UK to actually get the evidence yeah. from Zurich, which was really important because Zurich was actually the um, Zurich was where the submitters sat. You know, so that's where we submitted LIBOR out. So the most pertinent evidence, you know, the senior managers and the submitters were all in Zurich and all of those documents remained within the confines of Switzerland and never saw the light of day in any legal proceedings outside of Switzerland. So when you left your job at City, you ended up back in London? Yeah, well I did and then I just started getting another job, like I said, and was offered, you know. And it was ironic because uh, without naming Bank, one of the people one of the people who interviewed me, uh, Bank wanted to hire me. The last thing he said before he walked away from me was, you weren't careful enough. And I remember him saying that to me. And at the time I just thought, well, why, did, why would I have needed to be careful? And, and that is, you know, maybe I was naive, maybe I didn't realise. In fact, not maybe, I was. I mean, I think when your managers know, and your managers managers know, on the final notice into UBS is quite clear about that. And the, the notice into um, City, um, Ironically, the FCA didn't find City, although the CFTC did. Um, I've got my own opinions about why the FCA chose not to find City, partly because they put up witnesses for my criminal trial. Um, but when when the JFSA notice in the City came out, again, it showed that the manager and the CEO of the bank were aware of it. Um, so, you know, yeah, anyway, that's, uh, that's where I was. That's at that point. That's where I was. So I just thought the whole thing would blow over. So you know, you know, I'd, I'd lie low for a, a little while, and then we come back into the market. Um, and then uh, I think it was, um, yeah. So almost two years passed, and then suddenly December 2011. Um, no, sorry, December 2012. I get a knock on the door. Got 25 police officers. Wait, wait, wait. So you're in London at this point? Well, I'd actually moved to Surrey because my okay. son had been born and we moved to Surrey, yeah. But... So you were in the UK, in Surrey, yeah. and um, you weren't expecting, you hadn't had any previous notice of anything other than what, what you've already... Well, actually, I mean, I had had one letter from the FCA. Right. Saying that they may not speak to me in the future. And that's which is, Yeah, which is also quite confusing because the FCA were not, um, wasn't regulated by them. I was working in Japan, I was regulated by the Japanese. Had I committed a regulatory or civil violation, the Japanese would have done something about it, but they didn't do anything about it. I mean, the Japanese response to this was, I think, like, they gave, like, UBS, like, a one-week ban from speaking to clients. There was no monetary fine or anything. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, they recognised, much like the rest of the world's courts recognised, that it wasn't regulated and there were no rules. I mean, because I was... So it wasn't regulated officially because it was, it was basically this BBA, um, British Banking Association's um, well, protocol, self-regulatory protocol. Well, the Bank of England, sorry, the BBA tried at times to get the Bank of England involved and the Bank of England refused and said we don't want to get involved because we don't want to give it our imprimatur, you know, they didn't, they didn't, nobody wanted to regulate it and moreover, nobody really felt it probably needed regulated. Because it no, seemed to work. Well, no one complained about um, the rates. I mean, for, for two, for, you know, 10, 15 years, 
when those rates were so, being set commercially, no one so, complained. So for listeners who don't know how it works, maybe let's just very briefly explain. So the funding markets um, before 2008, before the, the entire rebound, even after 2008, but essentially the British Bankers Association was a city-based um, it was a trade industry membership-based yeah. um, organisation represented by the banks themselves. Yeah. Who um, were being asked to answer the question of uh, what price do can you can you fund today? Right. That's the question. I think the question was if you were to ask for and accept offers in the interbank market at eleven a.m. Where could you borrow money? You know, in relation to different tenors or time periods and different currencies, and they would then submit those answers to Thomson Reuters, um, but it was governed by the BBA, um, and within the BBA there was a committee called the Foreign Exchange Money Market Commission. They, you know, oversaw the rates, they oversaw the governments, they, you know, updated uh, guidance periodically from time to time, they were in charge of the rules. Um, and these rates set the sort of indicative uh, cost of money for the interbank market so all these mortgages and all sorts of other debt instruments were linked often to like well it depends the dollars it was libels linked the to the us dollar rate uh-huh. much more so than in other currencies i mean there were made way more floating rate mortgages in the states linked to dollar libel than there were say in the uk mm-hmm. and far more even than than definitely in Japan, where you had no retail mortgages, which is again liable more or less. Um, so, but there is there was a massive degree of hyperbole during the whole sort of outrage scandal part of this, where they said like every loan, every mortgage, every credit card is linked to this rate. Um, you know, yeah, there were some retail products linked to it, more and mostly in, in US dollars, but. Um, not quite as many as people would make out. I mean, and the other thing is, is that what was never really made clear to the public, I don't think, that the types of movement in the rate that were sort of potentially being, you know, talked about in, in, in this whole scandal were in the region one thousandth of a percentage point. You know, they were sort of an, they were an eighth of a basis point. So, you know. It was, it was always a bit confusing to me that if Japanese yen LIBOR moved around by one thousandth of a percentage point and was still an honest rate, um, how in, 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 in any way, shape or form that would affect the retail market at all. When you, when, at that time, you still had the existence of payday loan companies like Wonga charging people 6,000%. Like, so fun, fundamentally though, there was a game theory at the heart of the whole thing. And the idea was that all the banks had an incentive to submit the correct rates because they would be like helped well, I mean, check by their but rivals the thing, or outcompeted by their rivals if they over, over. Well, I mean, the thing was they had the trimmed arithmetic mean, so the top four submissions were removed, the bottom four submissions were removed, and they took the, mid, the average of the middle eight. But I mean, if it, if you know if Deutsche needed it high and submitted it high, and we needed it low and submitted it low. You know, more or less everything came out in, in, in the mix. But one of the biggest misconceptions in my trial, which was, you know, um, which was propagated by, you know, the, the fake expert that was used in my trial, was there was libel was a single number. And if you deviated from that single number, it must be false. The reality is, is that. I think this is a really important point. 
Because I think this now extends not just to rates, but to energy prices, for example. And um, when we talk about, it's, not, it's, it's relevant to all markets, really. Well, I mean, it's like anything, though. If you ask the price of something, then you have a number of vendors for an item. You could, you could say, you know, what price could you buy a telly? And you might go and get 10 different prices from 10 different vendors. Well, what's the correct answer? I mean, none of them are alive. None of them are correct. In the interest rate market, you might say, where can I get a five-year fixed-rate mortgage? You know, you get five different rates or ten different rates from ten different lenders. They will have different And everything appetites. is a function of who you are as well. It's not just um, so one character. One one after this became a thing during the crisis is that it, your credit profile really determined. Well, I mean, the thing. I mean, the question from the BBA is, where could you borrow money? Yeah. It was slightly different for your rival, um, and I, I I can't give you the exact terminology mm -hmm. that your rival used, but. So, you know, it would basically be where, where, where could you borrow money, where could you buy a telly, where could you get a mortgage, where could you, where, at what rate would you be given a credit card? Um, those were sorts of, those were sorts of, um, that, I mean, that was a sort of a level of, of decision making that was required. And it basically has become one of the key battlegrounds in the, in the law that was used to prosecute us. Right. So you, so, so because it was about you, it was always about the credit profile of the institution. But that shows the variance in the rates because, presumably, yeah, my ten rates I could borrow at are not yeah. necessarily the same ten rates someone else could borrow yeah. at. Um, so I mean, and so that's why you had the whole lowballing episode, which is when senior managers of banks and the Bank of England were effectively lying about their borrowing costs to disguise their solvency, and. They didn't want to submit a LIBOR rate that showed that their funding was under stress. And exactly. So, that, right. so, so that is when the investigations into LIBOR started in earnest. Um, um, challenging audio from the other table. But um, yeah, just to make it clear to, to listeners, you, you were accused of essentially um, pushing the rates higher in, in favour of your positions, like outstanding positions. Well, no, it could be higher, it could be lower. Could be, could yeah, be, uh, whatever benefited yeah. your pre-existing portfolio, right? Well, it, what's really interesting though is if you actually, when I did the analysis ahead of my trial, um, you know, I think 53% of the time, um, the, I mean, and I'm, I, mean, I, I can't remember the exact percentages, so I have to go back and look at the transcripts, but it was about 50 to 60% of the time, what I asked for was in line with my own um, trading books positions. About 9 or 10% of the time, I didn't actually have a position on that day, and about 30, 40% of the time, it was against my own trading book, because when I asked for rates to be high or low, I was looking at the desk's risk as an aggregate whole. Yeah. So I might be needing it higher, but the desk might, as, as, as the rest of the desk might need it low. And so they would internalise your positioning against all the other... Yeah, so you I mean, have to like look at the, the group position. Yeah, right? which is again, which is what annoyed me. You know, like this whole idea, it's all about benefiting me. Um, actually, it was, it was for the desk, and I would do things to the detriment of my trading book, which was to benefit the desk. Um, so that really annoyed me. I mean, that was hard to like try and get a jury to understand. Um, but UBS actually internally had an IT system set up for euro, sterling, and dollars, where those people would put into a spreadsheet um, their their desk positions. Those positions would be aggregated, and then they had an instruction manual for the submitter and how to move the submission relative to the aggregate position. Mm -hmm. And now. When we discovered that document, UBS claimed it was just a process note. 
which it wasn't. It was a, it was a, a definitive system which was set up to optimise the LIBOR positions in currencies other than yen. So where I was sending an email to the submitter saying this, that we, we as a desk we need it high or low or whatever. For, for other currencies, everyone was just sticking numbers in a spreadsheet, and then it would be, and then the, the submitter would know which direction to move their submissions in. Yes. Um, and, and then so like it's automated, and, it, and there's an IT background set up for it. Yeah. Um, so it's mad that like just because I was in yen, sent a load of emails. You know, I was the guy who could take full. So there you are in Surrey. There's a knock on the door. You, you're this is at night, right? No, it's seven in the morning. Seven in the morning. Yeah. So you, you would you were essentially not quite like it's not normal to get to a knock at the door at seven a.m. It's quite abnormal, right? Uh, well, I mean, it was a I wouldn't call it a knock. It was hammering. Oh, it was a hammer. It was a hammer. <laughs> so you tell us what happened. Well, I mean, I didn't. I, originally, I just thought oh, someone's doing some building work somewhere, and I just sort of woke up. And, and Sarah said to me, she said, "Someone's outside, Tom. Someone's at the door." And so I was like, "Oh, okay." So I walked down the stairs in just my boxer shorts, and I opened the door, and it's like, and it's quite cold outside. It was December, and you know, it's all these police officers start rushing in, you know, in you know, like, where's your phone? This, that, and the other, and. And they're all wearing stab vests, and, and then he said, "Right, stab vests." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the guy coming through the door goes to me, "You know, I'm arresting you on conspiracy fraud, you know, blah blah blah, libel." And, and I said, uh, "You mean libel?" And he said, "Yeah, yeah, whatever." And I just thought, "This is mad. I'm being arrested by someone who doesn't even know the name of the thing that yeah. I'm being arrested for." So I got put in a car, taken to Bishopsgate, um, there's a police station on Bishopsgate for the City of London. Yeah. Um, and um, I said to my lawyer, well, I'd quite like to give an on-comment interview because I just thought the whole thing was a big mistake. Did you have a lawyer already at that point? I did, and the reason I had a lawyer was because um, various papers had started reporting that this had potentially become a criminal matter. And the reason I sought advice from the lawyer was because I wanted to know whether I'd committed a criminal offence because I was sat thinking I, I don't even know if this is criminal or not. So um, that's why I had a lawyer. So um, when they turned up, they said, "No, don't speak." So I didn't speak. So you um, invoked your right not to speak, and and what happened next? So how long were you retained? I was there till like about six or seven, and then um, some people from Bloomberg and you know various other press outlets turned up at the front of Bishopsgate Police Station to try and get me coming out. Um, right. They no one had caught you being arrested at your home? There was no, 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 no. Then I went out the back door of Bishopsgate Police Station. But it's a funny thing because you lose your phone, right? So, I mean, I remember standing in Victoria Station, getting the train back to Surrey, using a payphone. Right? I mean, like, so, you know, oh my gosh. 1990s, like, using a payphone. They phone. took your phone? Oh, they take everything. School, my computer, all my phones, everything. Was like they were going to find something on there. Did they ask you for your passwords? Yeah. Did you have to give them? Yeah, I gave them. Yeah. But... I had nothing to hide. No, but like, presumably... What, do you, what would have happened if you hadn't given the passwords? Um, well, the jury would have been told and they could infer various things about how I was a particularly right. awful sure individual. Thank you very much. Enjoy. Can I get a mic? Oh, no, this one. That's fine. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, ironically, if you... Now, if you have an iPhone 6 or later, they can't get into them. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I only know that because I was in prison for so long. <laughs> you learned from other, other. Yeah, 
like inmates. Yeah. So. So that's true. They can't get into it. But the um, but essentially they could have. So it looks bad from from a case like from an integrity perspective if you de- if you decline to give your password when they ask. Well. I guess if you're a massive believer in like you know your own privacy, um, then a lot of people probably would object to doing it. But I didn't. I didn't really think about it. Just gave my password. But you were. So at the time, I think it was fair to say that you didn't really envisage that you would that this would escalate to the point that they did. Well. Even after I was arrested by the SFO, I just thought it was a big mistake and I couldn't explain it all the way. Yeah. And Sarah makes what said to me, she, at that point she then took an interest in the actual law of the situation. And she said to me, was it one number? As it libel? And I said, no, number of numbers. So she said, oh okay, so you, there was never, no one ever lied out what the rate they can borrow that was. And I said, no. And she said, oh, we'll be fine then. So there was a fundamental misunderstanding in how the market even functioned, essentially. Um, well, that was the thing, when they found out that they could not prove the rates that we submitted were false, because they weren't, mm-hmm. the whole case in law had to change. You know, whereas France and Germany, so this is no criminal offence, in the UK, you were charged on a conspiracy to defraud, which is a common law offence, which is an offence that the Law Commission has tried to um, repeal previously without success, because it's so nebulous and vague and can criminalise the non-criminal. Because um, so the, the issue of commercial interest is very um, noises again, but. Um, so the commercial interest side of it was a sort of grey area, like, or was it just quite clear? Like, well, when they couldn't prove a fraudulent misrepresentation, right? As in, we had submitted false rates. Um, they had to think of another operative means for the offence, if you like, mm-hmm. which is the fraudulent misrepresentation. Yeah, and. On my indictment, it said that that fraudulent misrepresentation, represent, fraudulent misrepresentation was a deliberate disregard of the rules. So we at a very early stage said, well, what rules are these? Oh, you can't take into account commercial considerations when you choose the right. Well, that's not written down anywhere. That's not how the market operates. And, and why wouldn't you take your commercial considerations in? I mean, that's... Well, Ironically, later on, after all the libel law had been settled, the arrival defendants went and spoke to all the founders of the arrival rates, got witness statements from them, and basically. How's everything with the kids? Very nice, thanks. Very good, thanks. Um, when they um, when they spoke to the founders of the arrival, all of them gave witness statements to say that. Not only was it within the rules to consider commercial considerations, but they had anticipated that that would be the case because all the banks obviously had commercial activity attached to the rates they were choosing. Yes, yeah, quite obvious in hindsight. Yeah, and then the courts wouldn't consider those witness statements. Right. Okay, so you, you're in prison. You're, you're detained at Bishop's Gate, right? You come out. You've got no phone. Yeah. What next? 
Well, get to Victoria. Um, I've got no phone, no passport. They took that as well. They took a whole load of stuff. But um, anyway, um, my main goal is to get home, get myself a laptop, get myself a new phone, which I did the next day, and just work out a plan of action with my, with my then wife. Um, but um, it was still okay then. I mean, it, was, it wasn't great. I mean, I just felt in control at that stage still. And this was the point, so you was you decided to keep the same lawyer that you had, or? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I did at that point, yeah. And um, and but but things were. And okay. how familiar were you with the law at that time? Like, well, I wasn't, but I was married to a, a, a very good lawyer. Oh right, so that. So that helped. Criminal lawyer or civil? City city lawyer. Mm -hmm. She worked for a big US law firm called um, German Sterling, Herbert Smith, so big city firms. So she was able to give you some advice? Well, not advice per se, but I mean, insight. I wasn't her client. Insight, insight. Insight, yeah. I mean, at that time she wasn't working, she was bringing up my son Joshua. He was one at that point. Wow. And um, so, what was the strategy? So, the, you, what was you had to respond in what way? Like, so you, you've been let go, but there was going to be a trial, or um, well, I was on bail, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, I was on bail under investigation. So, but the media by this point had gone already like hysterical about everything. Your name had been leaked, right? How oh, long? Long it been leaked ages ago. Yeah, I mean, but is that it, protocol? Is that normal for the name to be leaked? Well, it's so funny because the people who were who, who were like searching our house, mm. I think Sarah said to them at one point. She said, "What time are you going to leak this?" And they said, "Oh, 4 p.m." She said, "That's one of the SFO." People. And did they leak it at 4 p.m.? Yep. So the press knew it because I remember very clearly actually um, when your name was being circulated but did you start getting approaches from the press like what how did you deal with like well they started approaching me long before that when you know the initial story started in the papers this is when and the criminal um when you were well, deliberating whether it was criminal yeah and um you know city tried to when the JFSA released their regulatory report city basically spun this narrative that was completely untrue you know, which I think was spun by my former CEO, Brian McCaffrey, who's still in the markets. Um, and um, I, it was a, I look back, it was a mistake not engaging with the media. Instead, my lawyers told me just say nothing to anyone. How many approaches were you getting? And from how broad a sort of... I'm quite interested to just know how... Well, the FT were very aggressive. I mean, they were chasing my little brother around various election theatres at the university he was studying at. I mean, that's how mad it was. Um, but equally, uh, Gavin Finch and the former Bloomberg, who wrote possibly the worst book you can imagine on libel. Right. Um, they were quite aggressively chasing me around as well. I feel really resentful about some of those media people. I guess. 
it's a blessing and a curse because now, because of my publicity slash infamy, you know, my story hasn't died as a yes. public story, and it means that you know the people who are having to consider my case realise that there's going to be some scrutiny on what they decide. Did you get any favourable press at all? Do you recall? Like, did anyone sort of argue that this was basically um, an overreaction or? Actually, no, I think the funny thing is, is that the only time I started to get favourable press was after I've been convicted and then given the most egregious, destructive sentence that you could imagine by, you know, a sociopathic judge. That was, at that point, you know, I started to get, you know, leader articles and the opinion pieces about how I was escaping. But the narrative... That wasn't very useful for you. Well, the, the narrative then was I was really unlucky, I was a scapegoat, blah, 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 but I deserve to be in prison. And then that's when my ex-wife worked extremely hard to, to try and turn the media narrative around, which she did. And of course, you, can, you know, you, you come from a media family, your father. Yeah, he was an investigative journalist, he, you know, he was editor of World in Action. Which, for those he, who don't know, was a top-tier investigative program along with, like, with Panorama, the same sort of level in the UK. So he was, he was um, one could say, part of the kind of media elite, to some degree. Yeah, I don't think he, he described himself like that. Um, I mean, he's got a t-shirt that says, I'm literally a communist. <laughs> so, maybe he's a subversive. Um, no. he, he interviewed the guy who bought Well, he must have had connections, so I guess... Well, he was, he was retired, but I mean, he didn't have any any way of steering what was being said to the press. And actually, strangely enough, it took my own parents, including my father, a long, term, a long time to actually understand what the hell was going on. Really? <laughs> um, so, so, you had this media storm, and how long did you have to wait until you had the chance to sort of tell your side of the story? Um, well, you know, there was a there was an incident in two thousand. Start after I'd been arrested, Sarah had to go back to work. You know, the assets got frozen. Blah 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 blah. And what's know, that like when your assets are frozen? I mean, obviously, if you're in a relationship, you've got a wife. I mean, does everything get commingled with you? Like, does, does, does your wife have retain any access to? Um, I mean, how does it work? Um, yeah, I mean, basically, you just you, your bank says, okay, you can't take out. Um, like, it's, it's really complicated. You have a certain amount you can take out per month. Um, you know, you start operating in a cash world, effectively. You know, my wife just had to give me cash. Um, Right. To, to survive. I mean, so I, I stopped using a card or paying cash. Luckily, you can still pay in cash then. Yeah. Um, so these days, but, that would be hard. Yeah. Well, the whole thing's hard. I mean, you know, suddenly, it was strange actually because the first one, and maybe this was a clue for me, my long standing bank that I had for many, many years before I was arrested suddenly closed my accounts about two or three months before I was arrested. And I could never understand why I've banked them for 20 years. Um, and now I know it's because obviously the serious fraud officer had been going to look inside my bank accounts and then they decided to close my accounts. So, yeah, so we were on the restraint. Sarah had gone back to work and she'd gone back to her maiden name because there was all this stuff going on. And then the Wall Street Journal suddenly 
you know, got hold of my contact details and was saying we're going to write an article, you know, and they were going to write about my wife and my son as well. And the one thing I wanted to do was to protect them at all costs, particularly Sarah was going back to work, etc., etc. It was really bad for her from a, a sort of reputational point of view. And so I said to this guy, David Emmerich, okay, I said, you can play the long game or the short game, you know, I'll talk to you off record if you leave my wife and my son out of your piece. And so, you know, it's making a bit of a pact with the devil. So then I did speak to David Emmerich for about two years ahead of my trial, on and off. Um, but all the points I was making about the fact there was this range of numbers, about the rates weren't dishonest, about no one lied about the rates, you know, he then decided to write this book. Um, and I remember he said to me, I mean, in his book he said that I agreed that he could write this book and use everything that I said off record, on record. Now that's not true. Um, and um, what he actually said to me was, he said, I'm going to write a book. And I said, well, I can't stop you. And then he went and wrote a book of everything that I'd ever said, off record. I mean, I, when I said I can't stop you, like, I can't stop you writing a book, but that doesn't mean it's, it's the green light for you to go and use all the stuff I've told you. Now, he then sold this book as his greatest financial scandal in the history of the world. Clearly it wasn't. There's all this hyperbole about, like, he visited me in prison, which he did, where I had bulging biceps, which I didn't. That was some sort of, like, maths genius oddball that I wasn't. Um, you know, that this was something that had like affected every single, you know, person globally, which it hadn't. You know, but it was just, it was how you sell a book, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, ironically, although I really disagreed with the premise of the book, I mean, he did clearly, he did clearly write it from the standpoint that I was a scapegoat. And I think net net, it was a positive book for me because it um, engendered a lot of sympathy for me. I got so I used to get written to by people from all over the world when I was in prison. You know, Philippines, you know, New Zealand, Singapore, America, and almost exclusively, they'd read that book and then feel like I'd been really wronged. Um, but it was still in that stage where I'd been wronged, but I was a scapegoat. Um, and. I've been fighting for the last 10 years to actually say, you know, forget being wronged and a scapegoat, this wasn't ever a criminal matter, at the most it was a regulatory matter, not even that because it wasn't regulated. I mean, this was a political trial for political purposes, um, you know, where the UK now remains a sole outlier in insisting this rule exists where you can't consider, consider your commercial considerations. And that was the key thing that the, um, that was the key thing that the Second Circuit Appeals Court found in the uh, US that not only was it, you know, within the, not outside the rules, it was within the rules, and that motivation alone cannot render a truthful submission of where you can borrow untruthful. Because the legal argument that's being made repeatedly in this country is that that motivation means, I mean, this was the instructions that my children given even if the rates doesn't change even if the rates accurate it's outside of the rules and therefore outside of your legal duty if you consider your commercial considerations and the second circuit said well you know you can't take a truthful rate and make it untruthful just because you've got this consideration and the fca in some of their regulatory decisions conceded that you could toss a coin to choose the rate um, but my trial jury were busy being told by the fake expert that was used in my trial that it was a single rate.
which of course blew my defence out of the water because if there is a single rate, any deviation from that rate that must be by definition untrue. Which, so that was on. And of course, later on, we discovered that the Bank of England um, was engaging in lowballing itself. Yeah, but no, uh, those rates were untrue. And those rates were untrue. Because the bank would be bidding 6% in the market for money yeah. and not getting any, and then submitting a 5% LIBOR rate. So, you know, you can't, you know, that is, an, that is, a, that is a fundamental lie. And that's, do you think the Bank of England had a mandate to do that in its role as the central bank in, and its mission to keep markets um, stable and... Um, well, I said to the BBC, I've got no objection about the Bank of England trying to save the financial system. I've got no objection in a time of severe economic stress when, you know, there's lots of pressure from lots of people, people taking those measures. What I have an objection to is then suddenly, you know, that, those actions triggering the, you know, the articles in the Wall Street, uh, sorry, in the Wall Street Journal, which triggered the whole investigative beginning, if you like, the genesis of the investigations into the false numbers. And then when it's discovered that those false numbers are at the behest of the central banks, them saying, oh, well, I don't know. But also, oh, we found these traders who sent a few emails. We can prosecute these guys. The communications director of the Bank of England in 2012, spinning the story away from the bank and towards the traders. Yeah. You know, no one was shining a light in the right place. I mean, so you either say, okay, what the Bank of England did was wrong. We're not going to do anything to them, but you don't do anything to us. Yeah. You know, but... It fitted with the zeitgeist at the time, it fitted with the anti-banker thing, it fitted with the politicians' desire to make the score cheap political points at the expense of some bankers. I mean, George Osborne continually just harping on about how he was taking from the best in the worst in society to give the best in society. Um, you know, there were so many little strap lines that were used all the time. And that's one of the difficulties of overturning all this stuff. There's some very powerful people very big vested interests in maintaining the outcome of what happens. I mean, reality was the last time I had a real chance was with the jury. And then, but the jury were told lies by people who subsequently changed their evidence. They were presented with fake experts. They didn't see, they, the only witness they saw for the defense live was me. They didn't see all of the people who've now come forward to offer new testimony in support of what I've always said. And, and, and new documentary evidence as well. Um, and that's why I really think this court appeal should rehear this case. I mean, the, the other difficulty is, is we've continually said there's been an error in the law and that, you know, this implied representation or term that's being made by the courts in 2015 in relation to this rule that didn't exist, it, that, that's incorrect. Um, and I mean, the, the court appeal said it was self-evident that you couldn't consider your commercial consideration. Well. I don't see what, how or where it's self-evident. When you've got the founders of the arrival rate, which is based on libel, saying we knew that commercial considerations would be taken into account. And the thing that it I'm, just seems implausible to me that you you wouldn't consider your commercial um, interests. Well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why it's implausible. Because every submitter was a trader, and every submitter traded products attached to the rate. Yeah. So by definition, and this is a point we made in court, by definition, the idea of an independent rate is a fallacy. When you have a trader who's not behind the Chinese wall who trades products attached to this rate, how on earth? Yeah. Can there ever be any question about a rule that existed? Because if that rule existed, that role would never have existed in that format. Yes, exactly. But my trial judge thought you could decrypt the the, the uh, submitter could decompartmentalise his brain 
on one hand submit an independent rate and on the other hand have a fiduciary duty to his employer to make as much profit for his employer as he could. I mean, it's just madness. Yeah, I mean, you're calling for the submitter to have to recuse himself from any trading activities, which, which is impossible. No. Because even just the act of figuring out what the rate is, you have to figure out the positions of your fellow team members and your, well, I mean, your thing, interests are all aligned. Well, I mean, look, I mean, so it, often the treasury desks inside banks are funding the entire bank. So, you know, you have department A, department B, department yeah. C. Some will be net borrowers, some will be net lenders. Usually, they get charged a flat rate whether they're borrowing or lenders. So if every other department in the bank is, is, is if every other department of the bank is a net is a net borrower, you know, so you'll net all the other departments are net borrowers and they're all gonna reference the LIBOR rate, which is the rate. So some will be lending to you that rate, some will be borrowing to you that rate. But if they're all if they're all gonna be borrowing, if there's a net borrowing position, you want that LIBOR rate to be high as the treasury desk, because that's how you as the treasury desk make your money. So even the internal funding of the bank is attached to LIBOR. Sometimes it's attached to the published LIBOR rate, sometimes it's actually attached to the bank's own LIBOR submission. So, you know, you might... That's very interesting. So there's even an internal competition around, like, not competition, but you've got different interests um, squaring off against each other when you're trying to... Yeah, I mean, but I mean, those guys—they have to fund, yeah. and, and for them, they're not, that's not how they make or lose money. That's just they just what they pay for their funding. They don't really care. But if you're on the treasury desk, you and, 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 and you're having to fund the rest of the bank, or you'll say you say it's the other way around, and you, every other desk is not going to give to you, which is unusual. Then you know, then obviously you want to, you want to be borrowing at a low rate. Um, so if you read some of the early you know disclosure things that were made. Um, for, for my case, they'll talk about how libel rates of Bank of America, I think, were three or four basis points above the, above, above the truth, because that's the return that they need. Um, and that and that, that was in, in the evidence in court. Out of curiosity, and this is slightly off, off topic, would QE have changed those dynamics, like for internal treasury at a, central, at a bank? Well, in terms of the amount of... Yeah. Well, I mean, it, would, it changes it in so far that it makes it way cheaper for every other department to borrow money from you. And it's a disincentive for any other department to give you money. And where you have negative rates, yeah. you you know, you would be like actually being paid to borrow money. And where you have um, negative rates, you know, you would actually be penalised for, for lending money. So, so the Treasury would want to not lend in that case, internally. Well, no, the, the, the Treasury, in that case, with its negative rates, they would be happy for people, I mean, they would be unhappy if people were borrowing at negative rates from because it was costing them yeah, money. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, they'd be... so, yeah. So, given that we've been talking about all this retrospective liability, I think now's a good time to think about how it fits into what's going on now in the market, because crypto, whether you love it or hate it, whether you think it's a scam or not, one of the key objections that crypto people have um, in terms of regulation is that they will have a no clear guidance. And, you know, some people will say, oh, that's just, you know, they're taking advantage of the situation, it's a shill, you know, they're shills, they're just blah, blah, blah. Do you have any sympathy for this idea that, well, no one has regulated it, they, they're reluctant to regulate it, and then, you know, well, what do you expect? If you have no guidance, this sort of stuff is going to propagate. Well, human beings optimise, right? I mean, they act in their self-interest. So, you know, if you say to someone, you know, you can, you know, improve your circumstances um, in a particular way 
crew a particular action. Um, you know, I guess the, the point is, is actually in, in, in banks you were rewarded for finding those types of edges all the time. Um, and in the crypto space, obviously, you know, obviously financial rewards again for finding some type of edge. I mean, if I could issue a coin, say Tom's coin, and people were mad enough to pay me money for some of my coins, then you know, why wouldn't I do that? Um, I mean, I guess the thing is, it's just, it's, it's, it's like anything though, you know, greed is such a powerful instinct. And it was so strange because the two things I got asked most about in prison were um, were crypto and money laundering. Um, but I mean, obviously, criminals were keen users of crypto because it was a good way to sort of uh, keep their wealth away from um, the authorities. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and I sort of realised we were getting to the top of the crypto market when the prison officers started asking me about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. So I mean that. I want to go into like what your experience at, at, in prison was like because it sounded fascinating. But um, from our brief conversation already. But um, but before we do, do you have any sympathy then for someone like Sam Bankman Free? Do you do you have any? I mean, you more than anyone can sort of understand what he's going through. And the difference between you and Sam Bankman Freed, of course, is that he's been talking to the press, he's been tweeting, he's been writing Substacks. But been... I think there's quite a few differences. I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, mainly, he has, he's in a fraud with people who have, there are people who have lost money. Yeah. I mean, undoubtedly, there are people who lost money. They, I, I didn't have a single victim presented in my case. And that's you know. a really important um, point. There was nobody... Because a victimless crime is, at the end of the day, well, look, we, we, were, we were trying for the best rates, don't get me wrong, yeah. but my counterparties were banks, none of whom were going to stand up and say, well, we're a victim, because they were engaged in the same activity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, the prosecution kept my profit and loss out of the evidence. They wouldn't let me have my profit and loss in evidence. So I'm in a trial in front of a jury where there's no money and there's no victims. Thank you. I mean, that is a mad proposition. You know? So, in some ways, it's actually... Thank you very much. In some ways, it's actually the inverse position because he's obviously he's been derided as well by the press. Don't get me wrong, but he has had some sympathetic press. I couldn't believe how sympathetic the press has been to him. Yeah. In comparison to me. Yeah. Where I was vilified from the very first moment. Whereas, I mean, I couldn't believe that he was getting these favourable articles. Yeah. Um, like, oh, he can't do his therantropy anymore with other people's money. I mean, I, but I look. I the one thing I do have sympathy for is that I don't know the facts, and you know, there are a lot of other people who probably don't know all the facts, and you can make all the inferences you want, and they may or not be true. But you know, he, one thing he is entitled to is a fair trial, yeah. And so you have to give him that. Um, do you think in this day and age of like in social media, instant comms, it is a fair trial possible? Absolutely, I still can believe in a fair trial, but what you need is a fair prosecutor. Um, and that was something that was really lacking in my case, you know, when they knowingly used fake experts. You know, that's that was very difficult. All I'm saying is, you're not, for most people, you're not on an even playing field. One thing Sam Bankman-Fried's got in his favour is he's got tremendous resources I still believe in order to call upon them to like fund this legal fees. If he can if he can find two hundred and fifty million dollars for bail, he can find enough money to pay the top top lawyers. And in America, 
um, and to a slightly lesser extent in the UK, justice is a financial thing. Yes. You know, you know, when you get Michael Jackson and O.J. Simpson who are being acquitted, and I, I mean, I'm not saying the jury was wrong in their decision, but you know, it's certainly controversial. Um, the one thing those cases share in common is extremely well-paid um, um, legal defences. Um, and at the times, I think that you know, had I been better resourced, um, things might have been different for me also. But you know, I just don't know. I can't say it because the the the. The forces I was up against, you know, two investment banks with a market cap of hundreds of billions of dollars, two regulators on both sides of the world, on both sides of the Atlantic, two prosecuting agencies, including the Department of Justice, which is the most powerful prosecuting agency you could ever imagine. You know, it's, I stood, I look back and I mean, what chance did I stand? I, what I needed was a really fair judge and a really fair judiciary. Um, and I'm not saying that the court appeal were unfair, um, because I think at the time the evidence that was presented to them, including the evidence of the libel manager John Ewan, who subsequently changed his evidence, probably was enough for them to make the decisions that they made. But I would definitely say that my, my trial judge at the time had decided on the facts before he'd heard the case. I mean, he said that I was guilty, I was guilty on the email evidence alone, I say that because it's true. This is an open and shut case. If I was trying this case, it wouldn't last two weeks. You're a gambler gambling on a perverse verdict from the jury. And then, you know, we applied to have him kicked off the case because of all the comments he made of that nature. And his justification was just because I didn't qualify my remarks doesn't mean they weren't capable of qualification. And then he gave me a 14-year prison sentence. So if you're, a, you know, if you're an impartial observer and you heard a judge saying all those things about someone before the case has even begun, um, and you know the defence case hasn't been articulated, then you might say, well, actually, hang on a minute, you know, is, is this is this tribunal a fair tribunal? You know, I mean, in the case of SBF, I think there are analogies in the sense that the market is also incredibly complex to the average. I mean, I don't know whether Sam Bankman Fried's trial will involve the jury. But I think, or I think how it's, it works. if you look at the, lot, the if you look at the key issue in the yeah. libel case which was this deliberate disregard of the rules yeah. when no rule was written down. And if you look at the key issue that basically where can you borrow money from a range of numbers, that for me, both, both of those things are not that complicated a thing to sort of understand. If you look about, if you're trying to work out where all these funds are flowing in this great big organisation where there's loads of companies and subsidiaries and companies within companies, it's not Enron. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, liquidator guy who did liquidate it said, look, this is just a case of pure old embezzlement. Um, he's now representing the bankruptcy yeah. um, on the... Yeah, he's the, the new list. CEO yeah, of FTX, John Ray, whatever John his name is. That's a great and American he, name, that, John Ray. <laughs> Um, it, and he's at loggerheads with SBF, um, and um, interestingly, you know, SBF has been saying that FTX US was solvent, that he shuttered, the, the CEO shuttered the accounts um, needlessly, that there was enough money to, in fact, I think this week they... Well, the point is, is if you're going to run a defence, your best thing is to try and get the focus, to get the focus on the one area that is your strongest area and away from your weakest area, um, you know, so regardless of whether it was or wasn't solvent, for me it's a bit of a moot point when you've still got billions of dollars missing from everybody else on the international side. Yes. I mean, but like I say, I, I'm not fully appraised of all the facts. Um, and so, 
All I know is that it's easy for me to listen to the, the I mean, because it wasn't the Attorney General who charged him, uh, it was a Southern District of New York guy. Um, so so he, he, didn't, he didn't get the Attorney General doing his live press conference, so I'm the one up on him there. But of course, um, I mean, because you, you were facing charges in the US as well, these have now recently been dropped, right? So, I, had to, I had an indictment of 10 counts, yes. um, which was, would have been a 200-year sentence, and to my knowledge, Sam, Sam Bankman-Fried only got nine counts, so again, I'm one up on him on the number of counts I got. <laughs> You're one up on Sam Bankman-Fried. Yeah, then it is now, but you were, these were overturned. Yeah, I mean, in 2022, January, um, Matt Connolly and Gavin Black, who'd taken their case to the Second Circuit in the States to argue that it didn't constitute criminal offence because this so-called rule didn't exist and this was akin to a thought crime and, you know, effectively the prosecution had argued and built its case on the fact that a truthful submission could be made untruthful by the motivation under which it was chosen. Yeah. Was rejected. The prosecution's argument was rejected by the Second Circuit. They said, although it was an inherently unfair system, which it was, riddle your conflicts of interest, which it was, you, you can't turn the truth into a falsity on the basis of motivation. And so they threw out their conviction. They threw out the convictions of people who pled guilty. They, the prosecution themselves filed the motion to have my case dismissed because it wasn't in the interest of justice and it was based on a flawed theory of law. Same facts, same theory of law, same evidence as I was prosecuted by in the UK and I was convicted for and I went to prison for you know over five years of my life. Um, and for me, in some senses, whatever happens in the UK now, that vindication that I can turn around to anyone and everyone to say this is the only place in the world where it was ever considered criminal was hugely important to me because for the first time somebody had actually looked at this case and said it wasn't a criminal matter. Because I can shout from the rooftops all the time about what I do and don't want. Um, and what hasn't hasn't happened to me, and I'd say I'm innocent. This isn't a crime. This shouldn't happen. Blah blah blah. But having a a, a a considered body make a very intellectually and courageous and honest decision um, is really important to me because it was courageous. Because the Second Circuit knew when they made that choice, people who pled guilty were going to have their guilty pleas expunged. So. You know, it was, it was, it was, it, they made the right decision legally, in my opinion. Um, and they also knew, in so doing, they were going to go directly against the legal decisions that had been made in the UK. So, did you please. You're there now. Um, <laughs> Got any ketchup and mayonnaise? Um, we. Do you want any dessert, just out of curiosity? I'm fine. I, I, I might have a coffee, but. Um, because the pleading, the, 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 the guilty plead, um, you, so how did you plead at the end and what was the rationale behind your plea? My plea? Well, um, I, uh, I was charged in June and then I was arraigned at a plea and case management hearing to actually give my plea. Uh, I think it was September. No, it wasn't September. I dropped out in September, October, and I think I was in November. I actually pled, and I pled not guilty. You um, pled not guilty, but the key factor was behind your um, 
change of heart to no longer cooperate. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, there's a... Because you didn't want to get... You were trying to avoid being prosecuted in the US. I was a, trying to avoid extradition. Yeah. I mean, the... I think one of the key, uh, there's a story behind how it happened. Yeah. I mean, because I, I had a nervous breakdown when I was charged in the US and I progressively was in a very bad mental state of health. My ex-wife moved back to her parents' house with my son. I couldn't look after my son. I crashed the car, I couldn't drive. I was just like, I was all over the place. I was, I was in a very, very dark place. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was really hard for me. And uh, as the interviews went on, and I was being shown disclosure during that interview process, you know, I, I mean, I was, and I was having to make these false confessions and lie about my culpability in order to be charged in the UK and avoid extradition. But the, this evidence I was seeing corroborated what I'd said, what I thought about my managers, and you know, what actually happened in the real case. And, um, but, I, I didn't really have any agency over any of it until I'd been charged in the UK. So when I was charged, you know, I was getting more and more irate and angry, although I was sort of slightly less, um, you know, mentally um, ill. Um, and then my ex-wife said to me, we were in the kitchen, and she said, Tom, you've got to do something about this anger. You've either got to accept what's happening to you, or you've got to plead not guilty and fight it. She said, because I can't live with you when, when you're this angry. You know, we will end up getting divorced. And uh, so then that's when I went and, you know, sought a second opinion and I went to meet Charles Sherrill QC outside the Old Bailey and I brought a few documents with me and I showed him the documents and he looked and said, Tom, you shouldn't be pleading guilty to this. Um, because you were, there was a consideration for you to plead guilty. Well, no, I had to. As, had a collaborator. As, as, a, as a cooperator, right. as you, in, as, in, in, in that deal, yeah, right, the deal so. that I would have done yeah. would have entailed a guilty plea and cooperation to give evidence against my co-defendants all of whom were acquitted at a separate trial so I'm in a conspiracy of one to manipulate a rate I didn't choose after all my co-defendants were acquitted and every year I served in prison I thought well I didn't cooperate and six other people went home to their families so I'm doing a year for each of those guys yeah. um, and they never anticipated literally the prisoner's dilemma well it will to some degree yeah I mean I suppose so I mean the point is is that I I couldn't have lived on myself on my deathbed if I'd had to lie about those people in the same way other people lied about me in my trial. I couldn't have lived with that. Um, and they obviously, I had to make very, very difficult moral decision. But also for my own sake, peace of mind, I wanted to tell my story. I wanted the truth to come out. You know, if I pled guilty, I would have had to spend the rest of my life saying, well, I could never have really turned around very easily and said, well, I'm not guilty. And what was really interesting was I met one of the NatWest three, David Birmingham, when this extradition stuff was coming up. And what really struck me about him was how angry he was. But because he pled guilty, you know, he had no he had no way of saying, but I'm actually innocent. Yeah. And the moment you, you take that... But I think a lot of people um, on the outside won't appreciate how what goes on behind the scenes when these pleas are being extracted out of people well, because you, you like the, the really simplistic perspective is oh well he's guilty he's going to plead guilty and if he's not guilty he's, you know the, someone who's not guilty wouldn't plead guilty well, that's the, the well, rationale well right? look the decision I took from a trading point of view was shocking yeah because I could have kept my money I would have probably spent 14 or 15 months in an open prison where I could have gone home every month to see my wife and my child, you know. And instead, I said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to run a trial where I'm looking at, you know, seven, eight, 
years in prison. Uh, I mean, that's what I was th thought I was looking at. I mean, when I got 14, obviously, I almost fell off my chair. Um, but from a from a trading point of view, from a business decision point of view, it was a terrible decision. Yeah, the risk but, return. It yeah, it was awful. I mean, like, I could have taken a guarantee where I had like, okay, I know what the situation is, I know how long I'm going to be inside for, I know the sort of place I'm going to be. Instead of a high security prison, I'm going to be in some sort of like open prison where I can go out and work, I can go home. For it. I could get this whole episode out of the way before my son's even old enough to remember it. Um, but. My wife was right, that inner anger I had inside of me, but it just burnt and burnt and burnt. And I'm gonna be 80 or not, I don't know, hopefully, God, God willing, I'll be quite old when I die, but I'll be sitting on my deathbed at some point. And I won't regret what I did. I don't regret what I did at No, work. but I think, I, I, I empathize with that, because I think, you know, I've, I, I have family members who have gone for the conviction side of things, like, you know, compelled by their sense of righteousness um, um, in this, whatever. To not take the plea deal. To, yeah. yeah, because you don't want to be, you don't want the system to have, like, made you concede on a point that you're convinced you're, you know. Well, I mean, right. one thing I would say is that they never, they never thought we'd fight. And, I mean, like, you look at the decisions Matt Connolly took. If he'd pled guilty in the States, he would have got home detention and a few hundred thousand US fine. Instead, he spent every... If you stand up to the system, you basically get... You run that risk of being massively burnt. Well, I mean, he was he was lucky. He had a, he had a trial judge who, when he was found guilty, opened her sentencing marks with, uh, to quote Leviticus and the story of the scapegoats and said, you know, the Bank of England knew everything and, you know, so did the senior people of Deutsche. Whereas my child just said, as for mitigation, I see none. Um, so, um, but it was, but he, you know, he fought and they wanted a 15 year sentence and then he got, he got home detention and then he, at, at that point he still could have quit. Instead, he still get more money taking up to the second circuit. Um, and he spent large part, he spent his entire life savings fighting his case because he knew he was innocent. Yeah. And actually, if I ever win my case, it will be in a very large part due to what Matt did in the US. Because the irony of ironies is there were people giving evidence at his trial, lying about him, who who pled guilty, who've now had their guilty pleas overturned because of what he did. You know. So what I want to ask you before we run out of time, what I want to ask you about is what prison was like. How many prisons did you end up being at? Uh, six, I think. Six, yeah. And what's and, and Belmarsh was the one the most was that the highest security one? Or? Yeah, Belmarsh is an A cat. Yeah, so that's that's yeah, they've actually got a double A cat inside. So they've got a prison within the prison inside Belmarsh. Right. Uh, which is like where you get like really, really serious guys. So um yeah. Uh but Belmarsh was a tough a really tough prison to be in. You know, I shared a cell with a guy assassinated someone with a machine gun and the other guy was waiting for his murder trial. Two Jamaican guys, you know. Um, God, they used to watch some terrible TV. Um, and, um, you know, there's three of us in a cell, which is meant for one. You can barely stand up. You're in there 23 and a half hours a day. There's nothing to sort of dehumanise you more than having to defecate in front of another human being. Um, yeah, and 
I mean, I remember once saying to the Jamaican guys, you know, can I watch some TV tonight? And they had this conversation, which I didn't really understand. And it came back so I could watch half an hour of white man TV uh, that night. So we watched Have I Got News For You, which they were very, very confused by. They said, is this white man comedy? And I said, well, I guess it is white man comedy, yeah. Um, but yeah, they had, um, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a mad experience. I mean, I saw people get their throats slit. I saw suicides, I saw overdoses. You know, um, I saw a lot of really very tragic things. You know, uh, people, you know, just absolute misery. And I mean, I was in another high security prison as well for a long period of time. Um, but, you know, I, I made friends, some friends, you know, mainly people who were convicted of murder. Ironically. So you said that people wanted to know about your financial, they wanted to take advantage of your financial expertise in prison. Well, that, yeah, I mean, well, some of the officers wanted retirement advice about, you know, and equity release advice and things like that. Um, so it was a bit sort of Andy Dufresne-esque in that respect. The prisoners basically just wanted to know how to launder money. But also, they didn't. So they had a, but you, is it the case that they thought you had made loads of money and stashed it? Somewhere? Oh, they did, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, the rumour was I'd stolen one cent from every bank account in the world. Um, and that I had all this money. And I kept saying, I don't. It's all been taken off me, legal fees and confiscation, etc., etc. But the more you protest you have nothing in prison, the less people believe you because everybody's a millionaire in prison. And so. <laughs> When, when everybody's a millionaire, then when you suddenly say, oh, I don't have anything, they're like, oh, you must have loads, because otherwise he, you know, he wouldn't say he had nothing unless he had loads. So then you have this really perverse thing where you're actually trying to persuade them, you literally have nothing. And they're like, no, but you must have something, you know, because no one gets a 14 year sentence and doesn't do something where they haven't stashed a load of money away. Because the whole notion for them that I might not have actually done anything wrong, yeah, yeah. it's completely out there. You know, they're just like, you know, like, they thinking, well, he must have done something. And it's so strange. Sounds like they thought you did the trade from uh, Superman 3, where Richard Pryor skims, like, half a cent on every, you know, well, that, checks. Yeah, they'd probably seen Superman 3 on film 4 yeah. or something and decided that I'd done something <laughs> similar. I've got no idea. Yeah. But it, it was absolutely bizarre, really, because, you know, you have to be careful, because if people do think you have a lot of money, you can get, like, you know, they can come into your cell, tie you up, stick you under the bed, get your other half on the phone and say we're going about to chop some of his fingers off um, unless you send money to people. So, I mean, there were times where I felt a little uncomfortable where someone would become a bit too interested and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to need to watch for that. So I got myself moved off the wing or somewhere where I was, you know, safer. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was crazy because... I had to, I also had the issue because I had such a long sentence, um, and then people didn't believe I'd call that sentence for fraud. So you know there were rumours that I was a paedophile or whatever. But thankfully, there's a proliferation of mobile phones in prison, so I would ever say just Google me, you know, because I'm on the internet and I'm not a paedophile, and they'd be like, okay, yeah, he isn't a paedophile. Um, what was the most like surprising thing about prison that you were never expecting? Like what? in terms of whether it was worse or better or not how you imagined like so, so there is no nobody has phones or access to the internet in theory but in reality there's a circuit well I, I yeah I mean reality was I never ever had a phone in prison um, because it just wasn't worth my while and I mean I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have you know like 
I think in some ways it would have been harder having that access to the outside world. In some ways it's actually better to... So how do you keep to... in touch with what's going on? Do you have you have your phone calls with your family? Well, you get phone calls every now and again. You have visits four times a month. Um, uh, where some 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 uh, institutions allow you to have newspapers. So, um, you know, I used to get the Financial Times at the weekend, The Economist. Um, and, uh, you know, I still talk to my, some of my friends who were, you know, I had a guy who ran a hedge fund who used to come and visit me in prison. Another guy used to be a broker who used to visit me in prison. A few other traders who I used to work with come and visit me in prison. So I stayed in touch with some people professionally. Other people treated me like a pariah. You know, the moment I was arrested and charged, you know, I was, you know, this really awful individual. So um, that was quite hard, you know. And just suddenly going from, you know, just my old life and then suddenly people don't even want to associate with you because of the sort of reputational risk, guilt by association. You know, I'd love to have my conviction overturned um, so I can turn around to all those people and say, you know, I, I mean, ideally overturned because it wasn't an offensive law, but second best would be for it to just be overturned and say, listen, I wasn't actually guilty. All the... Just... So it, I think, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting, but it seems to me like a situation like yours, you really presumably figure out who your real friends are and who submits to the peer pressure around... Oh, you do, totally. Yeah. You do. You find out who your real friends are. I mean, I mean, it's, it's weird, though, because you go through... Going through prison, for, and I did a long sentence. It wasn't a short sentence. You know, like, it was... It was five and a half years of my life one eighth of my life and you go through that process and you do make some friends for life because you know you are inside of people who are going through that same hardship that you are and since I've come out I see all my university friends I still get on with them they're great but they don't understand me now in the way that some of the friends I made in prison understand me. And they will never understand me in that way because they've not had the lived experience that, you know, my friends in prison and I have shared. Um, and I guess it's like, I mean, I, I've not been in the army, so I can't talk to it, but people who've been on the front, you know, been shot at and had the person next to them killed, that's a, that's a really traumatic experience. And I think in some ways, you know, when you've been in prison, it's a little bit like that. And it's so ironic. I was walking along the road to get here today and I, I had my headphones in and someone shouted out, literally about 200 metres from this pub, mm-hmm. uh, there's someone shouted out, Tom, and I looked up and it was someone who I'd been in prison with. Oh really? Yeah, and I said, hey, how you doing? And he said, alright. I said, how you getting on? He said, yeah, I said, when were you released? He said, you know, a couple of years ago. I said, oh, similar. And I said, oh, are you still playing chess? Because we played a lot of chess in prison. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, look me up on chess.com. We can like, we can have a few games again. So I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll play chess again. You know, it's, and it's so weird though, because I saw him and I said, oh, and then I'm thinking about who he knew from prison, who I knew. I said, oh, how's so-and-so and how's so-and-so? And it's like, yeah, he's okay, he's okay. But it was just mad that like, there was another occasion I was sitting in a pub in West London, near where I live. And a guy came up to me who was, who I, sort of vaguely known in prison from years ago and said hey Tom and I'm like so, who are you who are you who are you and then he prompted me and I don't remember who he was he wasn't a friend of mine really but it's, it's funny like you just it's so weird the way fate just thrusts you back in front of people because the guy I saw was just randomly doing some delivery work you know oh, at, yeah. outside the shop and he saw me um, 
Well, I guess because you, you're desperate to get out there, but you don't consciously realise that you're making bonds with people as well. And then, I, I, I'm not surprised, it's a surprise when, when it hits you that maybe you made some friends and you see them and... But for some, my people who were friends with me in prison on occasion saved me. Saved me from serious violence. Yes. Um, you know, I could have been attacked in one particular prison quite badly. And uh, a guy whose name who remain, who's, who will remain nameless, but a Jamaican drug dealer of some repute from the southwest, um, stopped that happening. And I remember I was really worried. My lawyer came to see me because I was so worried about it. And one day I got back from a visit and he just took me to one side. He said, Tom, nothing's going to happen to you. And I was just like, okay. And I started trying to talk to him about it. He said, Tom, I don't want to tell you anything. He said, but nothing's going to happen to you. Because basically he had said to whoever was maybe thinking of doing something to me, you come for him, you're going to come for me. And you wouldn't have wanted to go for that guy, trust me. Um, and so, so, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, we could have a whole other podcast about like what you learned about the um, sort of networks and, and economics of the black economy in that sense, and, and how the hierarchies. Work. Yeah, I mean, like the thing is, the drug dealers, uh, the people who control the supply of drugs on the wing, often control the wing. I mean, um, I got put under the protection of, of, of one of those people in my in the very early days at high security. Because the staff know that they can't always look after you, um, but when you have the protection of someone, somebody will think twice about doing something to you because they know that it's not you they have to worry about; it's the other person. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, I got attacked once in five and a half years, and that was it. And it wasn't terrible. I got throttled, but you know, I survived it. Um, so realistically, I, I thought I did okay. It's, but it's a source of continual bewilderment to me that I made it through that time in one piece. Yes. So, where, what now? What, what are you hoping to accomplish? I mean, and what, what are you going to do in terms of career? Are you? Well, I don't know. The thing is, everyone keeps asking me about that. But the, the, what I do next is very much a function of what happens in the next twelve to eighteen months with my legal case, because mm -hmm. um, that really can open and close doors in a very dynamic way. Um, so, if your name is cleared, what would you like to do? Well, that's the other thing I don't know. <laughs> I just I, I sort of live my life in twenty-four hour increments these days because you know I'm not sure about. I, I have recurrent PTSD from all the stuff that's happened to me. Five mornings out of seven, I wake up feeling petrified, and I and I couldn't tell you why. And I have to sort of start the day and get on with the day to sort of get me through that initial fear. Yeah. You know, I have palpitations if someone knocks at the door I don't recognise. Do get, people recognise you other than your friends? Like. Yeah, in the city, in the city certainly I'll get recognised. I mean, on occasion people on the tube will recognise me, that's happened a couple of times. Um, normally they don't speak to me, but it's worse if you're in a city and it's an evening and people are getting drunk, then you get some people make comments sometimes, stuff like that. But I hate that. And if you're sitting here and 10 metres or 5 metres away, you can hear people having a conversation about you. I really hate it. I just would love to be anonymous again. But I, uh, at the same time, I need the media and the press to shine a light on the stuff that happened in my case. Yes. So. So in an ideal world, if you get, um, if you clear your name, would you? I mean, I suspect trading isn't going to be in your. Not for a bank. No, I mean, look, I, I, I don't think I'm fighting the FCA. I've been fighting them for like six you, years. They tried to ban me for would life. Would you trade crypto? <laughs> 
Um, I don't. I mean, like, I, I don't really don't know why we do, but I mean, in terms of, I don't think the FCA ever going to let me get a tool for all for in the UK. Even I mean, even if I get my conviction overturned, they'll fight tooth and nail to stop that happening. Um, I mean, they tried to ban me for life, and thankfully, a judge looked at my appeal, thought I had a substantive appeal, and he, he put a stay on that process. So they didn't actually manage to do it. I represented myself in that situation right up until the end when I had some pro bono assistance. Um, but I was doing all the legal arguments, skeleton arguments, correspondence from my cell in prison. Um, yeah. I mean, but the thing is, when you've lost everything, you've got nothing left to do but fight. Do you think the fundamental, like, structure of our legal system has is flawed as a result of like what you, I mean it sounds to me like people shouldn't be doing yeah. their own defense work because you're up against like well that was but that was just, but that was a civil case wasn't it the FCA. Right. so you know I mean but but even then but, but, like you're still facing but sometimes you have to remember that sometimes you are the best person to defend yourself because you care the most right. and that can be a difficulty and it can be a blessing because you can be emotionally but, you know, I know the evidence in my case inside out. I'm prepared to stay up till the middle of the night to, you know, go through papers to look for things to try and... I mean, and I found really significant evidence in my trial, in my case, after I'd been convicted, to show that John Ewan, who was the mad libel manager at the BBA, had lied in my trial about his knowledge of commercial submissions. You know, and that was me going through some, some papers from the US. But at the same time, you don't have necessarily yeah. sort of encyclopedic knowledge of the, of the rules and the law that, you know, you might have blind spots that... Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the, I mean... I mean or protocol I, thing. No, you know. absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is you can help in so far that you can help. I mean, um, I, I mean, I've had to learn a lot of law. You know, I've been fighting myself um, for my, for in my own case for, for 10 years now. You know, um, I mean, one of the things that I think in the future I'd like to look at is the use of conspiracy to defraud in this country. Because, like I said, the Law Society wanted it repealed in 2010. You know, and um, it's, it's wound up being um, used, I think, I think I think it's a, a, a prosecutorial, prosecutorial tool that's abused by prosecutors because they do have the 2006 Ford Act now, but conspiracy to defraud sets a very low bar for a criminal prosecution, which is why they wanted to keep it, why they successfully lobbied Parliament to keep it. And if we were to all have our convictions overturned, I think someone needs to seriously look at the use of conspiracy to defraud. So. So we're coming to the end of our time. I'm going to give you the last word. Like, what you know? Do you have any last word? Reflect like any final reflections on what happened to you? Outlook? Um, you know. Well, you asked me earlier. View. I think before the recording started, whether like what impacts you know this case had had on other people and whether it would change behaviour. And I said, well, I don't know if behaviour is going to be changed now because I'm not in the city now, but. You know, I know that you know the biggest crime that you can commit in a bank is losing money. That you know you're rewarded for finding edges, and that I don't see what happened to me as in any way, shape, or form a deterrent to anybody. Because in the same way, you know, you can get hit by lightning, have a tree fall, and you will get hit by a bus. You know, those that doesn't stop people walking in the rain. You know, standing under a tree in the wind, or walking across the road when there's a bus coming down it. Um, it, you just view that person as unlucky and in the same way that you know people would continue to in their lives in a normal way in spite of those potential risks 
I think people in the city will continue in exactly the same way, despite the potential risk, because they would look at me as just being incredibly unfortunate. So I, I don't think I don't think I'm a deterrent to anybody, um, and I don't and I don't think that culturally you're ever going to be able to remove from the human psyche that desire to find an edge, that desire to make money, that desire to be super competitive, and. You know, and, and you can you can see all of that in the events that are unfolding in the crypto space. Um, and people need to be careful though, because what they what they don't realise is what seems like standard industry practice, where they're doing nothing wrong in full transparency, can quickly become something that's retrospectively criminalised. And you, if you find yourself at the wrong end of it, like I did, then God help you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and stay in touch and keep me posted on uh, how your um, case goes and, uh, and good luck with everything. Thank it's you. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Except that wasn't it. Just as we were leaving, Tom dropped into the conversation how the whole experience had turned him to God, which was pretty profound given he had come to jail as an atheist. I found that interesting, so we quickly stuck the mic back on. I, I mean, when you go to prison, you know, you're looking for spaces away from the wing, away from the noise, away from the violence and what have you. And uh, the chapel and the chaplaincy was somewhere where you can go where it was, you know, quieter, where you got away from a lot of those things. I mean, ironically, people will go to church on a Sunday to try and see people from other wings who they wouldn't get in contact with normally to, like, trade drugs or tobacco or whatever. But... Um, you know, I was going every week to chapel and at the start I had a very transactional relationship, I would say, where I would sort of say, God, if you do this for me, if you let me win my case, then I'll give my life to you, which of course isn't how you pray or petition, because that's, you, you know, you either, you either giving your, yourself to, 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 to the Lord and to, the, to your faith um, unconditionally. And I was conditionally saying, well, if you help me out, you know, I will, you know, I'll always believe in you, which of course was nonsense because had I managed to win at that stage, I would have probably forgotten about everything. And um, there was uh, the prison fellowship who do a great job. They were coming into prison every week, um, you know, from outside churches. And that particular outside church was the Riverside Church in Derby. And they would come in and they'd talk with me and they'd pray with me. I was so polemic and angry and bitter and vengeful and full of rage. And they'd say, Tom, you know, you've got to let this go. And they would, they quoted this verse to me out of Hebrews, um, you know, and it was, you know, don't let the bitter root defile you. Um, I think it's like Hebrews 12, 15 or 15, 12, I can't remember. And they said that that bitter root inside you, Tom, is defiling you, it's, it's eating you up inside. Um, you know, and I thought, yeah, that's great, but I was still so angry and I was taking out on all the most important people in my life, the people I really loved. And they said, Tom, we want you to write some letters to all the people you're angry with. You know, so it's a pretty long list. Um, and people who'd lied about me in my trial, people who had like known the used fake experts, you know, the fake expert, you know, the trial judge from giving me that nutty sentence. And um, so I wrote all these letters. I spent the week writing letters to all the different people I'd got annoyed with. And uh, I came back the next week and I was like, okay, I've got my letters. So they wanted me to read the letters, so I read the letters. And I'm like, okay, did it help you writing the letters? I said, yeah, yeah. So it was quite cathartic. They said, and are you going to send the letters? I said, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to send the letters. They said, oh, okay, Tom, that's fair enough. We, but, you know, now 
we want you to um, we want you to pray for the, for the people who you've written to. And I was like, what do you mean pray for them? They're like, we want you to pray for them and you know and bless them and pray for good things for those people. And I was like, yeah, but these guys all like did me wrong. And they're like, no, but you need to forgive them, Tom. You know, like so the next step is for you to forgive them and then you can pray for them and bless them. So so then it was a point where I had to try and forgive them. Um, for the things that they'd done. So I managed to do that, and it was like a big weight had been lifted off my shoulder because I thought, you know what, I've forgiven them, and the judgment's not going to be mine, it's going to be God's judgment now, what happens to those guys. Um, and, uh, and actually, I feel sorry for some of them because for the people who did perjure themselves, you know, if they ever faced any sort of like sanctions or recrimination or redress, then they're gonna to have to go through a very difficult thing, which is not gonna be nice for them. So I, I you know, you know I, I not only forgave them, I then sort of did pray for them and hope that they would survive the process that they would have to go through. That doesn't mean there shouldn't be redress or justice, but it just took away the anger and the hate from me. And Nelson Mandela wrote in his autobiography that, you know, anger is like drinking poison and thinking it's going to kill the other person. And it's very much that's such a true quote. And the moment I stopped feeling less bitter and less angry and I could forgive those people and, and, and not only forgive them but pray for them, um, it might, you know, it really it helped release a lot of the anger in me. And um, then, then they've said, oh, now you've got to love your enemies. And I've never managed that. And I think anyone who can manage someone who's really done them wrong is an amazing individual. Um, you know, so when there was a sh shooting at a church in South Carolina and a guy called Dylan Roof shot the congregation and, you know, the mother of someone who died said, you know, immediately after the shooting, she said, I forgive him. And I just thought it was so powerful, you know, that, that she could forgive that person almost immediately because of her faith, um, who robbed her of her son, her daughter. And so then, so, you know, so then I was still going to church. At that stage, I wasn't, I hadn't been really born again at that point. And then I was having these terrible night terrors. I was waking up in the middle of the night, sweating, sort of really, really petrified, awful nightmares. Um, and it was happening repeatedly. And I remember one night, I just it was going on and on and on. And I couldn't rest and I couldn't sleep because of all these night, night terrors. And one night I just reached out and I just said, God, I don't know, but I don't know if you're real. I don't know. But please, please just give me some peace. Um, and um, then my night terror stopped. And that was that was really the point where I became a firm Christian. You know, so if I read Psalm 4 now, which is all about getting rest, and God allowing you to have that rest and being able to sleep, you know, it always reminds me of that own personal experience that I had. Um, and and it, did it help you get through your depression then? It did. It solved my anger problems. Um, I still, I'm still, I'm not, I'm not completely over my depression. But I did take antidepressants for a while, which were basically useless. Um, but my faith really helped me. It helped me get through my sentence. It helped me become a better person. It helped me, you know, not just think that everything that I did that was right that went well was all down to me. Um, it, it made me, you know, much more cognizant of other people. And I'd say I'm a better person than the person who went into prison. The, person, the Tom that came out is a, is a much better person than the person that went in. And it was really important for me that when I came out, I kept my faith alive. Because, you know, it's very easy to seek God when you're in times of distress and trouble. But then the moment, you know, that difficult moment in your life has passed, you forget about it. I mean, 
I always think about like a plane crash. If a plane's about to crash, suddenly everyone on that plane is praying and saying, God, please save me. And then the moment it lands safely, you know, they've all forgotten about it. You know, but and equally, previously they might have even not have even ever said a prayer before. But we do seek solace and reassurance in prayer and in and in faith when when times are difficult. But I was it was really important for me to say, well, okay, times are going to be better for me now. I mean, okay, they're not perfect and they're still very difficult for me. But it was really important for me to to to, to when I came out to. To keep within my church family, to keep my faith, to keep reading the gospel, um, and to you know be able to thank God when good things happen to me, as well as in the lowest ebb when you really need you know His support more than ever. You know, and the Bible says that you're not tested beyond which you can endure, and I and I think that I think that that is true. Um, and I don't know how things are going to turn out for me in the future, but one thing that my faith has given me is I'm much more accepted, accepting of the way things may turn out, because it might not turn out as I would like it, but it will turn out as God would want it. And I never understood why I got the sentence I got, which was an insanely long sentence. But the one thing that came from that sentence was my finding of faith and my finding of God. And I wouldn't have that never would have happened to me if I hadn't been given that insanely long sentence. And the irony of ironies is the judge who sentenced me was a strong Christian and it was a big barrier for me coming to faith that because the guy who'd given me that sentence who I felt so angry with um, and unforgiving of was a Christian. Like, it was like suddenly like I was surrounded by all these lovely Christians, you know, and, and I was surrounded by non-judgmental people. You know, and when I got out of prison and I walked into that church and people say to me, oh, you know, hi, welcome to church. And where have you come from? And I'm like, oh, I've just come from prison. And they're like, oh, great. You know, and they they welcome you. They don't judge you because, um, you know, Jesus didn't judge anybody. And they try and live in his image. And we all do, but unsuccessfully. Um, and, I, you know, and I think that, you know, my faith will very much guide me in the way that I live the rest of my life. Well, thank you very much for those additional thoughts, and uh, good luck with the case again. Yeah, okay, sorry we didn't get it in the main section. No, no, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? You just, um, I guess in this day and age as a journalist, it's certainly not something you bring up very often, it's people's faith, because it's not. There's only one journalist who ever spotted that I was a Christian during an interview. I've always wanted, I've always been interested in how faith fits into finance, actually. I know that sounds crazy. But um, I feel that beliefs are so central to finance because the market is a belief system the other day. Um, so I've always been intrigued in, in yeah, that. I don't, I mean, I'd be really interested because I mean, I meet a lot of lawyers who are of faith, but I very rarely meet people who are in the markets who are of faith. Yeah. You know, it's it, in, in banks and in hedge funds and whatever, I don't think you find people who are of faith very often. Um, every now and again, um, you know, you, you, there might be somebody. I think I read about some guy who was, who might have been a JP Morgan during the financial crisis. It was too big to fail. The book that was written about the financial crisis, and they quoted to Timothy um, when everything was blowing up, and the guy was like, "I don't know if I can do this." And his wife said to him, "You know, we're not made in the spirit of timidity. You know, we've got, you know, you've, God's given us courage to go forth and do things. And it's one of the only Christian references I've ever seen in a financial book ever. 
um, it's, and it's deep in the book. Um, and it's, it's like, you know, almost as an aside, but it's, yeah. It, we don't, I don't think there's that many people of strong faith in the market. And yet, I think faith is really knocking on the door of financial markets, trying to come back in, and you find it everywhere from crypto to, and obviously not, not Christian faith, but there is a, a sort of cult mentality that it substitutes for faith. Um, and it, it, like people just have that inclination to want to believe in things. And, um, and when it's not a specific religion or whatever, it manifests in whether it's ESG values or in crypto or HODL, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's all so faith-based, but it's, it's misdirected if you're, not, if you're not necessarily... I mean, I think the thing is, is people, we all, I mean, I'm a big supporter of my football team, Queen's Park Rangers. You know, some people might say, well, supporting the football team's a bit of a religion in of itself. Yeah, Everyone no, goes definitely. to the stadium every week, you know, and the, the crypto evangelists is a faith for them. You know, it's like, you know, they will never not believe um, in that particular thing. Um, and so I guess maybe there are lots of faith beliefs out there, be it in financial markets or in everyday popular culture, that are there to try and replace, you know, like a more secular society, trying to replace faith of the theological theological-based society. Um, so, I mean, it's an interesting philosophical question. It's just, it, it is interesting, the absence of faith and moral codes being such a key part of, like, Christianity, and yeah. and then you've got Sharia banking, obviously, coming at... Synthet, sometimes people criticise that very, um, you know, quite heavily because it's a sham, like, it's not really... Like, a lot of it is about how you synthesise industry... Um, uh, lending, but I mean, yeah. it's quite interesting for me that you come out of the rates market, which notoriously, you know, is, is sure, like from a Christian, even from a Christianity perspective. Well, I don't know the rules around. Well, I mean, I mean, the money lenders. Yeah. Jesus abhorred them. He turned over all their tables in the temple, didn't he? So I mean, and those are the people lending the money to earn the interest. I mean, and he, you know, was really unhappy that that was all happening in the temple. Um, yes. So, so that's an interesting, interesting and poignant way to end the, the podcast, I guess, is that you are kind of the living embodiment of interest rates gone wrong in some ways. <laughs> I had the table turned over, that's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. And then now you've found your faith um, and, and in some ways you're living um, a philosophy focused on, on, on not giving away your wealth, but if you were to have you know, your example of giving a sleeping bag or whatever to a homeless man. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it changes your philosophy about trying to help other people, you know. The uh, return factor, I guess, is what I'm trying to get to the bottom of. It's like, yeah, I mean, once um, you extinct, separate yourself from the interest bit. <laughs> I think the other thing is, once you've had a lot and you've lost it all, and you've, you know, it makes you much more aware of how fortunate you are when you do have something and how difficult it is for people who have nothing. Yeah, Well, on that note, thank you again and, uh, and good luck with everything. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Cheers. That was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska. For more on what happens when finance and media intersect with reality, check out The Blind Spot at the-blindspot.com.